You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Hope everyone is doing well today. For those of you who don't know, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at the Gate. And uh, over the past couple of months, we've been studying through the New Testament letter, 1 Corinthians, uh, in our sermon series titled United in Christ. And we've been learning from the Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians. And he was writing to a church which had become divided on many issues. Uh, and we've and he's been teaching them about how important and necessary and possible it is to be unified as followers of Jesus Christ, as the body of Christ. And uh, today we're going to find out that another one of, of, of those issues which, which the church in Corinth had become divided on was the practice of eating meat. Eating meat. Can you believe that? They, they, they were arguing about whether or not to eat bacon and, and brisket and ham and steak, and ribs, and lamb chops. Like, why would they do that, right? I mean, I'm offended just even thinking about that. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I'm getting a little hungry, though. But um, for, for real, the, the reason this had become a point of contention wasn't over whether these animals were free range or anything like that, which we argue about today, but it what was happening in those days is that most of the meat which was affordable was only available in, in the meat market. And, and that meat from the meat market usually came from cuts of animals which had already been used in animal sacrifices at the Greek and Roman temples of the Greek and Roman gods. Okay, So um, this led to, to them asking the question among themselves, among the Christian believers in Corinth, you know, is eating that meat a participation in the idolatry of pagan worship. So this was their conflict. And, and of course, some of them, to, in, in answer to that question, some of them said, yes, it is participating in idolatry if you eat that meat. And some of them said, no, it's not idolatry if you participate in eating that meat. And so they asked Paul, what do you think? And so this is his answer to them. Uh, from 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13, and then jumping all the way to 10, chapter 10, verses 23 to 11, verse 1. So he kind of, he starts, and then he gets into some other stuff about uh, idolatry, and then he finishes his point. So we're going to, you know, have both sections of, of 1 Corinthians here that we're going to be reading through. Um, so we're going to start at 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. This is the word of the Lord. Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, 
is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And jumping to 1 Corinthians 10, 23, he continues saying, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved." Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All right. Um, In the iconic Steven Spielberg film, Jurassic Park, how many have seen that? There's a moment in which Dr. Ian Malcolm, one of the characters who'd been invited to see this newly built island theme park filled with real but genetically created dinosaurs, He looks at the man in charge, and he states, Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Is he up there? Yeah, there he is. So Dr. Ian Malcolm's point there was just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, right? Uh, For example, uh, after church today, I could uh, go home and tell my wife to clean the house. But should I? Right? (laughs) Is my my life worth it? Um, Yeah. So again, you know, I I don't need to tell you. You you know how it's going to work out, right? So just because we can do something doesn't mean we always should. And, And in a sense, this is what the... uh, Apostle Paul's message to some of the members of the church in Corinth about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols is he's basically saying to them, yes, you have liberty to eat it, but yet that doesn't mean you always should. And, and this is a, a reminder for us that, that not every question we have concerning how we should live as Christians in this world or about what is permissible for us to do or not to do, it's not always going to be the simple yes or no 
answer, right? It's not always cut and dry. And as we can see here, sometimes it's a lot more complex than that, right? Um, and, and while we don't really struggle with this situation in our day and age, uh, this was certainly, again, a concern and, and, of course, an issue of contention within the early church in Corinth. Because, as I mentioned before, pretty much the only uh, affordable meat you could purchase in the food market there would have been meat from those various cuts of animals, which had already been used in the temples for animal sacrifices to Greek or, or, or Roman gods. And, and, and this meat was actually sold in order to raise money for the temples. Um, uh, I actually have an uh, archaeological picture from, it's a sign. Do you have that picture? Yeah, there we go. So that says um, the McCallum of Corinth on it, so the, the meat market of Corinth. So this is, would have been actually the sign that they were looking at uh, in the meat market. You know, the, the people that Paul's writing to here, they would have seen this sign, you know, almost every day at, at the food market. So I thought, I thought that was pretty cool uh, to think about. Um, and then the next picture, there, that's a a picture of the Temple of Apollo, and actually our very own Peter Pan Conan, where is he? He, he took that picture in, uh, was it 2006? Yeah, 2006, he got to go there, so that's pretty cool. Maybe I'll go there one day, I don't know. But anyways, that's the Temple of Apollo, and, and according to my research, they would actually uh, sacrifice wolves and hawks at the Temple of Apollo there. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there were uh, 16 other various temples to Greek, Roman, and Egyptian gods in Corinth alone, uh, which means there was a lot of animal sacrifice and, and pagan worship going on. So anything from lambs, goats, cows, you know, the list goes on. Um, so this provided, and you know, with all this animal sacrifice going on, this provided actually a lot of meat for the citizens of Corinth to either purchase at the market or, or to consume at or near these various temples. So pretty much anywhere food was served then, whether at a you know, workers' guild event or, or if they got invited to dinner at their neighbor's house or during a celebration, there, there was a large chance that, that they would be eating food that originated from these sacrifices. Okay, so, so the question which these believers faced daily, again, was, can we eat this in good conscience without compromising our faith? And although it's not surprising with morally gray issues like this, though it's unfortunate, it's, it seems that, that there were two different and, and opposing sides to this debate, which was, again, causing some contention and division within the church. So some believers there, uh, especially those who'd just been saved out of these pagan religious practices, uh, it seems like they felt strongly in their own consciences still that eating the meat left over from these and these animal sacrifices and this pagan worship was basically synonymous with taking part in the idolatrous worship. But of course, others in the church, they disagreed. And, and they said, and their argument was this, they're saying, well, since they know that God is one, and then all these other so-called idols and, and gods are nothing and, and not real, and therefore powerless... This must mean that the meat sacrificed to these fake idols is also harmless, powerless. So their argument is that basically that the truth has set them free, that, that their faith and knowledge in Jesus has set them free from, from having to believe that these, that, these, that these false gods or pagan rituals have any power over them or anything else, including the food they eat, which is why they felt at liberty to purchase and, and consume that food with a clean conscience. Is this making sense so far? 
Okay, so, and to this, Paul actually agrees. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6, I'll, I'll read this again. He, he agrees with them. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So he's using quotations. There's quotations there because um, the theory is that he's quoting what they have said to him, right? So he's agreeing with what they've said. And then he goes on. He says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, so Paul concedes, right, to their, their logical reasoning and knowledge of God here. He's like, you're right, you know, idols are really nothing. They aren't re- really real. And, and it's true that there are other spiritual beings, sure, but even still, everything is in subjection to the one God. The Father who created all things and and through the Son whom all things were created, right? Through whom we exist. So with this knowledge that God is all authority and that there's no God besides him, it would almost seem silly to to be afraid of or, or to give any semblance of power to any idol or any practice of pagan worship, right? Especially when it comes to food. So basically, to, to give food some, some sort of spiritual power over them is, is, is really to deny that God has authority over it, which is why Paul quotes uh, the, the famous Jewish meal blessing uh, from Psalm 24 uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 10.26. He says, right, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So again, God created and provides all things. God holds authority over his creation. So therefore, what can a fake idol due to anything which God created for us? Nothing. Right? So theologically speaking then, the logical conclusion was that they were certainly permitted to eat this meat if they wanted to. To further confirm this, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Right? But again, the issue at play was a lot more complex than just finding out whose opinion was theologically right or wrong. For even though these certain and, and more mature believers knew it was harmless, the problem was that the consciences of some of the others in the church community still convinced them that it was wrong and sinful. And so Paul's saying, Don't make this decision on knowledge alone and then in so doing, forget about those with the weaker conscience. In other words, knowledge has the potential to make them arrogant, right? And so he reminds them, first of all, they need to act in humility because if they think they know everything, that probably means they don't, right? And secondly, they need to realize that not everyone has has the same knowledge or maturity as them. Right? We're all at different levels of faith and understanding, aren't we? In fact, he warns them that to eat this meat in front of other believers who are struggling with it might actually end up tempting them to join in with them and therefore end up doing something which, which their consciences still tell them is a sin. As Craig, uh, theologian Craig Blomberg writes, what the, what the strong, the 
strong in conscience, were lawfully practicing, eating either in home or temple without religious ritual. The weak could not do in good conscience, so that for them the eating was sin. What the strong felt would build up the weak was actually daring them to do something destructive. And furthermore, as Paul reminds them, to hurt a fellow believer or, or to cause them to sin because of something you, you did or didn't do to them is to sin against Christ. So that's heavy, right? Of, of course, Paul, formerly known as, as Saul, well, he still goes by Saul sometimes, but um, he knows about this firsthand, right? Because when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, he's on the way to persecute some Christians, and Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus. Saul asked him, who are you, Lord? And Jesus replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And we know that Paul wasn't, wasn't directly persecuting Jesus, right? Paul was persecuting Jesus' followers. But yet in this statement, we see that Jesus is taking that personally. He takes what happens to his followers personally, right? Which means that if we hurt someone who follows Jesus, we hurt Jesus, If we cause them to sin, we're sinning against Christ. He takes what happens to his followers personally. This this is a big deal and should definitely cause us to think twice about how our actions affect others within the church. And this is is the whole point, right? And what we see in this passage is that when it comes to morally neutral or gray issues like this, Paul seems less concerned with, with whether these things are permissible or lawful to take part in and actually more concerned with whether doing them will glorify God and how it will affect others. Knowledge puffs up, he says, but love, on the other hand, love builds up. And that should be the most important thing. The two greatest commandments. First, to love God with all we are, right? And the second, love others as yourself. That this, Paul's saying, this should be what guides their choices and actions in these types of scenarios and circumstances. Of course, knowledge isn't bad. In, in fact, it's, it's good to have it and grow in it through the word, right? Because it forms our, our minds and our consciences on who God is, which is actually why Paul calls those with knowledge in this passage the ones with, with the strong consciences, right? But yet, he also reminds them that, that your knowledge needs to be balanced and guided by love. In fact, it's those who love, Paul writes, who are the ones that are known by God. 1 John 4 19 to 21 says it like this. It says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And one of the ways... Again, so one of the ways you practically display both God's love for us and our love for him is by loving one another, right? And by loving our neighbor. And love at its root is sacrifice. It's setting aside our own interests and liberties, even if we know they're right, even if we know we're allowed to do them, 
doesn't matter. We set them aside for the sake of building up others or seeing them saved like Jesus did for us. Romans 15, one to three. says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so again, while these, while these stronger and more mature believers in Corinth might be correct in their knowledge and in, in saying that eating the meat is fine and, and, and it's their right to do it, the deeper and more important question is, is, is eating it actually helpful or beneficial for everyone? That is, just because you can do something doesn't mean you always should. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So again, just because you're free or, or permitted or justified in doing something, it doesn't always mean that you should. In morally neutral matters like this one, it's actually more important, especially for those who are stronger in conscience and spiritual maturity, to set aside their freedoms and liberties if that's what it takes to avoid being a stumbling block to someone else or in order to build others up in their faith. The cross actually demands that our concern for others should take precedence in these types of situations. And Paul even models this attitude himself and, and encourages them to imitate him as well when, when he says, look, it, it doesn't really matter to God or our faith if, if we eat this food or if we don't eat this food. It, is, it doesn't matter. It makes no difference. So if doing, but if doing so has the potential to offend somebody or be a stumbling block to their faith, my choice would be to not eat it at all. He's saying eating this meat is inconsequential to their spiritual growth. So why not just avoid eating it or at least avoid eating it around those who, who struggle with it if that's what it takes to promote peace and unity and sanctification in the church because that's what's most important. And, 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 and furthermore, why, why would we choose to do something or to not do something, whatever the scenario is, just because we're allowed to or, or because we have the right to if it has the potential to create division or offense or tempt others to sin. There's nothing Christian about that. As uh, Anthony Thistleton writes, a responsible, caring Christian will not exploit his or her liberty or rights if to do this damages or inhibits the building up of fellow Christians. In essence, this is not loss of freedom, but a proper use of freedom to do what is best for the other in a given situation. It's not loss of freedom to say, well, I'm just not going to do that then, right? It's a proper use of freedom. But with all that being said, Paul also writes that he recognizes that there may be certain scenarios where it, they might need to eat this meat or it might also be loving to actually eat the meat. Like in situations where, you know, they need to buy food and that's what's available at the market. Or when they get invited to an unbeliever's house for, for supper or 
or something like that, right? He says, you know, in those situations, you go ahead and, and eat it. And for the sake of a clean conscience, you know, avoid, don't even ask where it comes from. Just, just avoid being worried about it. Because again, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're loving your neighbor. And so again, we come back you know, to what I said at the beginning. This is a complex situation, right? These morally gray or morally neutral questions on whether we can do something or, or, or shouldn't do something, right? It's, it's complex. There may be times when they should eat the meat, like when the people they're, they're with might be offended if they don't eat it. And, and there may be times when they shouldn't eat the meat, like when those they're with might be tempted to sin. So in the end, it, it really depends on how it'll benefit and build up those that are witnessing it, and ultimately if, if it will glorify God or not. As uh, Ray Steadman writes, Christian courtesy would demand that we, we never flaunt our liberty before anybody who feels strongly about it. For example, uh, if we feel free to take a glass of wine, we would only do so if we felt there was nobody at the table who would feel very strongly against it. It is only a momentary fleshly indulgence and can easily be passed by if somebody does not like that kind of thing. But on the other hand, if there is no question of that, we are free to exercise it. You know, sometimes I think about the fact that here at the, at the gate, I'm, I'm perfectly free to wear jeans while I preach on the stage. And, you know, no one bats an eye. No one really cares. And, in fact, you know, maybe some non-traditional people or, or, or newcomers to the faith might actually feel comfortable because of it. Um, and I know that, you know, theologically speaking, I'm not commended to God by the pants that I wear, right? But by Jesus' grace alone. It's just by Jesus' grace alone, thank God. Um, but yet, I mean, we laugh, but, you know, that's a big deal to some people, right? And, and when I got asked to preach at a, at a citywide service a couple years ago, I knew that there would be members of more traditional churches in attendance. And so in order to not be a stumbling block to them or cause any offense to them, I, I chose to wear dress pants. No big deal, Right? On the other hand, though, it would have been a big deal if I had chosen to force my freedom on them by wearing jeans or if I'd thought in my moral superior, superiority and, and in my knowledge that, that I was teaching them a lesson in Christian liberty by wearing jeans, right? You know, in that case, my knowledge, as Paul puts it, would have actually only hindered them and actually taken the focus off of Jesus and taken the focus off of, you know, the unity that was being built in that service. So I set aside my liberties no big deal, for the sake of others. It's easy. So on that end, you know, I think, I think we, can, we can all learn from this lesson as well in our own lives and as the body of Christ because we, while we don't usually struggle today in Canada with this problem of eating meat given to idols, hopefully, but, um, you know, there are definitely a lot of similar morally neutral or gray areas which, which come up from time to time in our lives. And, and there have been many that have already become points of contention over the years in the church. You know, questions like, you know, whether to, to hand out candy on, on Halloween or let our kids dress up and go collect candy, right? Or, or, or whether to have a glass of beer once in a while. Or whether to take part in, in various traditions during Easter or Christmas that have pagan roots, or, or whether we can play video games or listen to rock music, right? That was a big one in the 70s and 80s. I was born in 82, so I'm just, I've, I only heard about these things. 
You know, when I think about that, though, the, the, the irony about doing pagan things is that we actually do them all the time without even knowing it. Right? In fact, uh, here's an example. By using the days of the week, we're taking part in pagan and traditional Hellenistic astrology. Did you know that? For example, Sunday for the god of the sun, moon day for Monday, right? Thursday is Thor's day, the god of thunder. But really, you know, using the term Thursday doesn't affect our faith or relationship with God either way, right? And, and, and the reason for that is because we know that Thor isn't real, right? And that there's no power in, in fake idols or, or pagan rituals. So, so our consciences are clean here. We can use the term Thursday, you know, for the, which day of the week is that? Fourth, fifth? I don't know. <laughs> Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. The fifth day of the week. There we go. Or, you know, here's another example. I'm going to name a bunch of potentially divisive examples here. Yes. Um, here's another example. Okay, when couples feed each other cake on their wedding day, right? We've all seen that happen, right? You know, they cut the first piece of cake and they, they grab a piece and they feed it to each other. Oh, it's so cute. Um, that actually comes from pagan Roman tradition, right? That's actually a sign of, like, them getting married. But we do it today as this, you know, fun thing at the reception. And, and so, of course, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't curse the marriage or, or help it in any way, right? And, and it would be silly to think that it does either of those things. In, in fact, Paul would say that, you know, it's only those with a weak conscience and a lack of, of knowledge concerning who God is would believe that it could have some sort of spiritual effect on, on them or that doing so would be a sin because, because it, just because it finds its root in, in pagan wedding ceremonies. But yet, with that being said, if, if you do think it would, if your conscience is like unsure about it and, and you might feel guilty for doing it, Paul would say then, don't do it. That's fine. Because your conscience would condemn you. So it's okay. Well, here's another pertinent 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 example. I can't talk. Um, you know, whether or not to participate in a yoga class. Of course, yoga originates in, in the Eastern religions of Hinduism and, and even Buddhism. And so it brings with it, it often brings with it a, a pseudo-spiritual or religious component, right? Um, but yet, some Christians like doing it uh, doing yoga is just a practical way of exercising and maintaining flexibility or maybe rehab from an injury or something. So, so they're fine with it, doing it, because, you know, it's good for their health or whatever, and, and they know in their consciences that the spiritual side of it is, is powerless and nothing, just like the dead idols of the meat sacrificed to them are nothing. Yet, some other believers, as we know, right, maybe those that have just come out of Hinduism or Buddhism or more traditional in thinking, right, they, they might think in their consciences that it's wrong and, it, and, and that it is a participation of pagan worship. Or it, might them to, or it might tempt them to commit adultery in their hearts if they're encouraged to join it. So that's just another example. So we definitely face a lot of situations, I, I think, that are, that are similar to the Corinthian church's conflicting opinions of, of eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Which means we can learn from Paul's teaching here and just the wisdom that, that, that he brings to this discussion. In light of this, Paul gives us some criteria to consider and, and ask ourselves 
so that we can make loving and wise decisions in these types of scenarios. And uh, I'll give credit to uh, theologian Warren Wiersbe. He, he nicely laid out some of them in his commentary, and I'm drawing from most of what, what he said here. The, there's five questions that we can ask ourselves in these, in these kind of morally uh, ambiguous scenarios. Number one, it's important to ask ourselves, is it permissible or is it actually idolatry and slavery? And it's important to be honest with ourselves here Dig into the word. What does the word say about these things? Right? Is it permissible or is it actually adultery slavery? And then second, will doing it, or not doing it, depending on the scenario, be helpful and build others up in their faith? It's an important question to ask. If the answer is no, you probably don't need to do it, Right? And the next question is similar. Will doing it or not doing it actually be a stumbling block to others? And if the answer to that is yes, then you definitely should not do it, right? Like Paul said, you know, if it's going to be a stumbling block, I'm just not going to eat the meat. And number four, will it only please me or does it glorify God and Jesus, right? Is this just a selfish thing that I want to do, and so I'm just going to force, force it no matter what? Or, or is this something that is actually going to bring glory to God? It's important to ask ourselves. Number five, will doing it or not doing it help to win the lost to Christ? That's the most important question, right? And so... These are the questions we should ask ourselves in these, in these situations because ultimately, as, as Warren Wearsby then writes, the way we use our freedom and relate to others indicates whether we are mature in Christ. Strong and weak Christians need to work together in love to edify one another and glorify Jesus Christ. That is the goal. Edify one another and glorify Jesus Christ. In conclusion, then, we need to have the mind of Christ, as it says in Philippians, to humbly count others as more significant than ourselves, because this is what Christ Jesus did for us. Again, as it says in Romans 15, 2-3, which I read earlier, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And this, of course, is, is what we remember each Sunday as we participate and receive communion together, right? That Jesus did not please himself, but rather took the weight of our sin upon himself and gave up his life at the cross for our sake to rescue us and raise us up with him in glory. And so if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, if you walk in that freedom which he has given us, I invite you now to Walk up to the front and grab the juice and the cracker and make your way back to your seats and we will receive communion together as the body of Christ this morning.